This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, and everybody welcome as you listen in. This is Dante Stewart, who's my guest today. He wrote Shouting in the Fire and American Epistle. I've been following Dante for probably five or six years on Twitter and following him along on his journey and so excited when he got a contract for a book. And then this book has blown me away because it is so poetic, such a prophetic witness, and it really is memoir. So there's so much personal stuff in here. And for a debut book, and you're still a young man too, so you still have a lot of writing left to do in your life. And I'm just so excited for you and happy to dig into this book. So uh, maybe we can start. I'm going to just read the the flap here so people get a chance to know who you are. Cool. Cool. As Dante Stewart is a speaker and a writer whose work is in the areas of race, religion, and politics. He's been featured in CNN, um, Washington Post, Christianity Today, Sojourners, The Witness, A Black Christian Collective, Comment, and elsewhere. Went to Clemson, played some ball there, uh, and now is at Candler School of Theology, Emory University in Atlanta. So there's a lot going on for you. And as I read in the book, it really hit me hard because my my background is I'm a Latina, uh, white passing, mm. but my family is affected by white apathy. And when you said you mm. were radicalized by white apathy, that hit mm. me real hard. And I was wondering if mm. you could kick us off by explaining what you meant by that. Uh, well, th- thank you, Lisa, uh, for having me on first and foremost, and sure. it's, it's really good to be with you. Um, I mean, when I think about white apathy, I think about the system right now, you know, where mm-hmm. it is announced that, that Cal Rittenhouse, I want to name that right now because I'm feeling yeah. that in my body, right. uh, that Cal Rittenhouse is, is not guilty on all accounts. Um, I mean, that's both white rage and white apathy in, in one case. You know, and it's the failures also of the white system and society um, to 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 hold those who embody white supremacy and its violence to to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that is white apathy to look at the violence of white supremacy and to say not guilty. That's white apathy. And your book really entails a lot of uh, the people who inhabited black bodies mm-hmm. that were slaughtered, really assassinated and um, brought before us all on social media over and over again, and really um, created a kind of reckoning in your own life. I, I want to begin mm-hmm. too with speaking about how you admit and deconstruct how you allied with your own white supremacy and and whiteness for benefits you felt that and access you felt mm-hmm. it could give you, but at the same time left behind your roots where you came from, your family, kinfolk. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of your book. It's really, really powerful. But maybe you can explain mm-hmm. a little bit, give people a taste. There's there's no way we're going to cover how this, this book is so poetic and, and powerful, but you can give people a taste a little bit of your story maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... So I'm raised in rural black South Carolina, the black rural South um, in, in between three towns, St. Matthew, South Carolina, Swansea, South Carolina and Sandy Run, South Carolina. Uh, and I, I was raised black Pentecostal. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and that represented for me a, such beautiful experiences in church. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it did represent, you know, complex experiences as it relates to, uh, how Christian faith and experience, uh, can oftentimes be the place of trauma, uh, and marginalization. Mm-hmm. And so when, 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 when coming from this place of which, you know, many in South Carolina who make the decisions, particularly in politics, uh, and education, uh, they called they called the place where I come from the corridor of shame. Hmm. Now that was not something that arose out of our own story that we told ourselves, but that was something superimposed upon us. Hmm. That to be from this zip code and to live in this area hmm. is to be locked into a place that is not uh, that is not surrounded and engulfed in sacredness, but engulfed hmm. in shame. And so when you kind of receive that narrative, we, we also got to think about scripts uh, in, in society and even in religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to be thinking about scripts and how scripts work to shape identity and, and embodiment. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the script that um, Elizabeth Alexander, Professor Elizabeth Alexander talks about in her essay, The Trayvon Generation, yeah. where she calls the those who were raised in the last 25 years the Trayvon generation where we as young people are familiar uh, with um, public acts of anti-black violence. Mm -hmm. And we are familiar with the ways in which white supremacy destroys us. And then she says, this informs us thinking about scripts, this informs us in embodiment and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about that script of embodiment and vulnerability, the type of vulnerable and fragile life that, South Carolina decision makers imposed upon us, it also shaped what we thought about ourselves. So in order to, you know, make it in society, many of us believe the script that in order for us to be successful, in order for us to survive, in order for us to be free, Mm -hmm. uh, in order for us to make it in life, that's the kind of language that we use in order for us to get it how we live. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it meant like being in closest proximity to whiteness and white folk, Mm -hmm. um, not really taking into account what we gave in exchange. Mm. And oftentimes what we gave in exchange was the fullness of our humanity just simply uh, for one demographic's feelings of our presence. Mm. And so what, what this brings is oftentimes a distancing and a devaluing of your identity, of your culture, of your religion, of your people, and that's what happened to me is that, you know, I went into this space, I played football and I got caught up into white evangelicalism. And, and, and what happened was that the world that I knew so familiar that I was raised in uh, became a world that I found fault in. Mm. Right. You mentioned about how you were kind of a rising star in this white environment. And then it was also predicated on your silence to have a kind of unity with people in power in those environments. And I I thought that that was really interesting. It was, if you could, Mm -hmm. for the sake of, quote, unity, uh, be silent when there were things that obviously had a great effect on your psyche, your well-being, your your friends and family, but to say something or to, to be visibly disturbed to say something that was on your heart would be somehow either disloyal or you know too 
discomforting or whatever mm-hmm. is really interesting how you had to be less than yourself, be less than your full self mm-hmm. to it really exist in, in those ways. You had to accommodate, over-accommodate for them to be comfortable. And I, I think that that's something that maybe white audiences don't understand. Uh, I, I appreciate this so much, giving this book out. And and I want people to read it who, of course, people who have who are Black males will read this and go, wow, this is me. This is my story. I get this. I've lived this. But people who are not in those bodies, and are not those kinds of people don't have necessarily a visceral sense and they they don't know what it's like to not be them right so it is great to read this and say yeah when you when you have to adjust all the time how exhausting <laughs> how demoralizing and dehumanizing and i mm-hmm. if you could speak to that that breaking point or those those points that that got you to say i this isn't my home i don't belong here mm-hmm. you know it was mm-hmm. there were several things but but t- talk a little bit about some of that yeah i think i think we also got to think also and then thank you for that question mm-hmm. we have to think about especially when you're talking about being minorities you know as it relates to power because when we're talking about minorities in the context of society we're not talking about you know, just simply numbers. Mm-hmm. We're also talking about power. And I think that that is something important for us to understand is that oftentimes minoritization is grown out of marginalization. And when you are marginalizing a minority within any demographical perspective, and you kind of exist in this white dominated society and oftentimes in white dominated churches and spaces, there are two things that happen. Uh, you, you are invisible. So two kind of experiences, invisibility and hyper visibility. Now, this is nothing that I have came up in my own mind. You know, this is based on, I mean, many people who are race theorists, mm-hmm. uh, who, who talk about race, uh, who talk about in the cultural studies field, whether you're talking about, oh, you think about Stuart Hall or, or I'm thinking uh, Kelly Brown Douglas or Willie James Jennings or J.K. McCarter or people who are doing that kind of theological work, but also people who are doing, you know, like Nell Irvin Payne and those and, and people like people like her or Kara Anderson. Uh, they, they speak of this idea of invisibility and hyper visibility mm-hmm. where inside of the society, your body, your 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 future, your your family, your culture, your art, anything that you do to create life or to speak of, to speak in the language of Kevin Kwashi, anything you do to world build. So anything you do to make your world, you know, is oftentimes rendered invisible. Um, And therefore power and marginalization go hand in hand and minoritization go hand in hand. When you are minority in power, Oftentimes you're rendered invisible because the powerful does not want to see you or hear from you or only want to do it in which the relationship is transactional. So we think about we think about even right now with with the ways in which the larger white society is reading black books and black art. Uh, It's simply built off this idea of transaction that whatever you create must in some sense just fit into this mold of teaching white people to be more moral and better. Mm. And therefore 
will converse and just converse based on your books that's written on unity and coming together and things like that. So this transactional relationship pretty much erases the rest of your humanity, the rest of your art, just simply based on the sensibilities of the powerful. And in this situation, in a racialized society, thinking about uh, Bell Hooks and, and what she talks about, the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, hegemony, uh, white people are the powerful. But there's also hyper visibility where you are always being seen and you're conscious of being seen. And and, and it's almost as if every movement is police. So I'm thinking mm. about young, young black kids, you know, where inside of our society, there's a book entitled The Rage of Innocence um, inside of our society, the way way young black kids wear their pants or wear their hair or 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 use their voice or whatever. Uh, it's oftentimes hyper visible and policed. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking about the case of Amar Arbery. Amar Arbery uh, is not, you know, a victim of invisibility, though he is. His humanity was invisible. Um, but he is also equally a victim of hyper visibility and the ways in which white supremacists uh, and white society justifies this violence because when it does see us, there's an addiction to our suffering and ultimately, in this case, to our death. And so how did I get free? Hmm. When I saw the death of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and the response of white evangelicals to their death, but also the response to Donald Trump, what happened was it, it's almost as if, to speak in the language of Paul, the scale fell off my eyes where I rendered myself invisible. I rendered other people invisible because like I said, in the, the places that we live in and have our moving and being in always have scripts that it wants us to inherit inhabit, and believe. Mm. And the script that I inherited is that black life must be invisible, erased, or if it is visible, it's only the type of blackness that allows white people to be comfortable. So when Alton Sterling is murdered and Philando Castile is murdered, my eyes are now open to see us, to feel with us, to suffer with us, and to figure out a way to deal with the trauma that I felt in my stomach and in my body. Thank you for mentioning that. One of those regular things now that now that um, there's been a kind of democratization of of cameras everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's not the same gatekeepers in the sense that you know any regular person filming somewhere can. Mm -hmm. can put up with what's really happening and then you have this this reaction I, I find strange like oh my goodness I guess things are really bad and it's just because there's more there's more video around but it's not that anything in in white culture has changed it's there's just more videos to see yeah and in some sense like it, it is the video that you know, in some sense, I knew it, but I ran from it. So it wasn't that I did not acknowledge, you know, mm -hmm. that that white supremacy, what it was. But the way I was taught in white spaces to name it, mm -hmm. it never was around me, but it was always out there with bad, quote unquote, bad white people. Uh, rather than engulfing and circling the space of, quote unquote, good white people mm -hmm. that 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 for me when I woke up, 
the good white people and the bad white races were the same people. They were people who still believe Mm -hmm. that the world that was built for their children must Mm -hmm. be protected more than the world that destroy ours. And so it shook me up off of this false notion that like to be nice, Mm -hmm. to be, to be, to, to worship and to sing and to preach uh, somehow in some sense, save oneself from what you inherited in a white racist society. And when I started to deal with that and deal with that among the leadership, then I became the person who was talking too much about race. Mm. And it wasn't that I was talking too much about race. It's that they were not talking enough. And it was their ability, their privilege to not talk about it. that yeah. gave them their power. Exactly. That why would they have to be made uncomfortable? And you talk about um, that, you know, the discomfort is prioritized over and against black bodies that are actually being snuffed out. And that's the real disconnect. It's time for a reckoning. And one of the pages on, I guess it's page 96 and 97, I would love it if you could kind of unpack this a little bit. You talk about the difference between white rage and black rage on 96, black rage in many ways rooted in certain a certain narration of Moses, the prophets, and Jesus is rooted in a quest for Black dignity, self-determination, safety, power, and a democratic and liberated future for all people. And that's in contrast to white rage, which you talk about on 97, white rage imagines a future where white supremacy rules and has killed for it. Maybe you could just flesh that out, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind, a little bit, Mm -hmm. because I think that sometimes these are used as equal, interchangeable things, but really there's something very different going on. One is about liberation and, and uh, exi- basic existence, mm-hmm. and, and the other one mm-hmm. is about maintaining control and, and mm-hmm. more than that, more than just that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I would suggest this, this new book that just mm-hmm. came out um, mm-hmm. by Mayasha Cherry, uh, Professor Mayasha Cherry out of UC Santa Barbara, entitled The Case for Rage. Uh, or the role of anger and the anti-racist struggle. But also I would suggest uh, the incredible book by Dr. Carol Anderson, uh, White Rage, uh, The Untold Story of the United States of America. Mm. And in both of these books, what they are wrestling with is the difference between black rage and white rage. And simply what I was trying to mess with as it related to my story unfolding. Mm -hmm. Um, And at a 30,000 foot level, white rage, as you so astutely affirmed, is about the ways in which white society wants to protect white power. Uh, it is it is about this justification of violence. As I spoke to earlier, even right now in this Cal Rittenhouse acquittal, it is the justification of violence. It is it is the justification. It gives him the oxygen. It, it tells him and affirms that you know you can cross state lines. And murder two people and call it self-defense and be justified, not just simply in the eyes of white people, but in the eyes of the law that is to be governed for all people. Mm. And so that is white rage. It is white rage when you hunt and lynch a black man in Georgia who simply wants to live. It is white rage when in the same way parents go to school board meetings and tell tell black parents publicly that they don't want their children learning about their people. Mm. That's white rage. Mm -hmm. 
White rage is going and committing insurrection because you believe that an election was stolen from you. But white rage is also believing that Jesus is white. Jesus doesn't care about the suffering of other people beyond white society. That's mm-hmm. white rage. Yeah. It is the myriad interlocking, enduring ways that white people violently try to keep a country and a faith that they believe is theirs. That's white rage. And violence in terms of soul killing as well. Like So violence, yes, and, and murders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because last year I was listening to, um, yeah, Gary Youngay, where he talked about COVID-19 and, and the protests in response to the murder execution of George Floyd, where he talked about violence is not just physical, but it is economic. It is also psychological. Uh, violence is also spiritual, as you have spoke to. Violence is not just simply how one wounds the body, but like you said, violence is also about how one devalues the life and how one crushes the spirit and how one diminishes the future. That is also violent. To speak of ways in which this country fails us is to also speak of American violence. We live in a very violent nation. Like it is a violence to force us to endure re-traumatization. And so we have to speak to it that way. But then also I personally, as I started to speak about black rage, I did not want my book to simply be about white people or to simply center white people or to simply talk about the terrible ways in which white people learn how to be white in this country and American and Christian. And I wanted to speak to the ways in which we black people uh, utilize anger and rage similarly to the way Nehemiah did uh, and and those whom we are familiar with in our own struggle, the ways they utilize rage as a spiritual virtue, right. as a catalytic principle to fight for our dignity and our freedom and justice, even when the system failed us. So I am of the perspective that inside of a slaveholding society, Nat Turner's rage is justified because Nat Turner's rage is a profound belief in his dignity in a country that suffocates him and does not give him justice. So he's justified in bucking against the system. I wanted to, especially in the realm of Christian theological thinking, I just wanted to deconstruct that framework that allows the moralization, the T-H-E, moralization of white rage without allowing the moralization of our rage, which is completely different. Mm. It seems that oftentimes when black people are angry or when we are fraught with disappointment as it is today, the first thing people do is not sit with us in our anger, but they want to rush us to forgiveness. This is parallels a little bit of what you talk about, making sure people have the imagination to understand Jesus as black. And you say, this isn't like Jesus is African, but the idea that, that Jesus comes from the oppressed to the oppressed and that Jesus understands, identifies with those who are marginalized, not the dominant culture, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work when we paint Jesus out as as the dominant culture that, that reverses the gospel. Mm-hmm. People will bristle. I've seen it. If you say Jesus is black or Jesus was black or something like that. And 
Yeah. What you say in your book is trying to trying to say what that means in a broad sense, how powerful and essential that is that we understand this character of God um, and the character of mm-hmm. Jesus. Who is the incarnation? Mm-hmm. Well, well, from if we're thinking historically, uh, Jesus is a Palestinian Jew from the poor side of Na- Nazareth. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, someone who comes from the long tradition of the prophets, the sages, but also the radicals. I mean, Jesus, uh, and I'm even thinking about the book that sits behind my right shoulder, uh, two books in particular, Jesus, actually his name Jesus by Marcus Borg, um, uh, and um, uh, really three books, Jesus by Marcus Borg, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman, but also God of the Oppressed by James Cone. And what they what they said, you know, was at a 30,000 foot level when we talk about Jesus, we have to look at the ways in which the social, political and religious world shaped Jesus own consciousness, even as he embodied the fullness of divinity. He, he still lived as a man in Jerusalem or as someone as a theologian, M. Sean Copeland said so wonderfully, you know, Jesus was still somebody who resists forms of ecclesial embodied privilege and domination hmm. he resisted those forms so he was he was an embodied person whose gender performance whose religious performance uh, wanted to resist domination and embrace fullness of humanity and liberation when i think about my time in white spaces and i write this in the book white folk didn't have a problem uh with the paintings of jesus being white you know, nor did they have a problem with seeing Jesus th- mythologically or, or metaphorically in C.S. Lewis's lion, Aslan. But they had a problem whenever people started talking about Jesus is black or God is a woman or God is a black woman in the, mm-hmm. in, in the light of uh, Christina Cleveland or Dr. Uh, uh, Christina Cleveland. They had a problem with that uh, because they were led to believe and they've been socialized and discipled. To see the image of God in an animal before they ever can see the image of God in a woman or particularly, as I wrote, the image of God in blackness. Mm -hmm. And as Toni Morrison says, this is profoundly racist. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is profoundly white supremacist, but it is also profoundly powerful. And even we, as those who are in the minority of power inside of these spaces, Mm -hmm. even we uphold that idea of Jesus. Even we uphold that framework of Jesus. And I believe that that Jesus, particularly as I lean on those like Renita Weems and Kelly Brown Douglas in her book, Stand Your Ground. Um, even then, like, I, I think we need to reconstruct uh, this kind of historical personage of Jesus and, and how we think about the story of Jesus and what out of that story gives us meaning, because stories are always constructed as bound to traditions, as bound to myths, is bound to metaphors. That's not to say, you know, that that they're inherently fictitious per se, but to use myth uh, when we do an etymological study of the word myth and think about antiquity, uh, a myth is a story that gives a community or a person meaning. Mm-hmm. So we have to broaden. And what I wanted to do is I listened to these voices of theologians, of black liberation theologians, uh, mystics, uh, womanist theologians and black feminists. Mm-hmm. Um I wanted to hear, and particularly black texts, you know, black literature, as I uh, speak about, and even it's woven into my own book. 
Uh, I wanted to generate meaning in the story of Jesus, not first listening to what white people said, mm-hmm. you know, but listening to what the ancestors had to say to me. That's beautiful. One of the things I so greatly enjoy about following you on Twitter is the seeing your beautiful family and seeing how you love them and love on them and teach them how beautiful their bodies are, how Thank you. beloved they are of God. I'm also a parent and I realize that's that's the job of every parent, but it's also an uphill battle when the world tells you what you're supposed to think about yourself or they tell you lies about your humanity. So one of my questions to you is as a parent and, and you speak about your son in the book mm-hmm. and being a father a lot and the enormous responsibility and some of the anxiety that comes with that because knowing how his body is perceived in the world. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the the ways you want to parent so your son knows the truth about himself and his mm-hmm. beauty and um, what you see as, as kind of a role, your role as his dad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like what I wrote in the book. Don't you ever get used to this? Mm. Um, and when I, when I, when I write that, you know, but also I write about what haunts me, you know, as a father, particularly Elizabeth Alexander, you know, what, what do we hope for the future? You know, and 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 what do we hope for their future? Yeah. And I and I write about how that question haunts me because you know I don't know what to hope for mm-hmm. in their future. I really don't. Like all I can legitimately tell my son is, this is the country that we have inherited. This is the country that wants to murder us and kill us and does not want us to exist. This is what we have made of this country. To 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 speak of um, Nicole Hannah Jones' brilliant essay in the 1619 Project in the opening, that we black people have been the perfectors of democracy. Mm. To tell him, you know, this is what you hold. This is what you inherit. Uh, and, and don't get ever get used to thinking like this is normal. Mm. It is not normal. It is not normal that one must exist in a country where. We are expected to show up to a podcast and record an interview after hearing a verdict like that. It is not it's not normal that we that we are expected to press on when our bodies hold so much. Like It is not normal to have to deal with the, the exhaustion of this trial uh, on top of the exhaustion of many trials that have proceeded right now. And also another trial that we are living in right now with a, with uh, the, the Michael and Brian trial. Uh, and, and just the reality that, that that the pain is not ours alone, but the that we only enter the pain of the living and the dead to which they allow us to enter. Mm-hmm. And so we suffer vicariously. And to understand that vicarious suffering should root us and ground us and keep us in touch with our own humanity and the humanity of others. Mm-hmm. So I want my son to notice the tears of Amar Arbery's mothers. Mm-hmm. I want him to notice the tears of his father and his cousin and his family. I'm speaking metaphorically, not just literally, but also metaphorically mm-hmm. to, to see those tears in the eyes, but to also see the ways in which they look upon his body with love and beauty mm-hmm. uh, to also see the hate within the eyes of the Michaels and in the eyes of Cal Rittenhouse, but also see the ways in which white tears will kill us three times once in the street, once in the eyes of the law, and lastly, when they go free, 
we die three times. And so remind him, this is the world is yours. This is the world, you know, but to also say, as Baldwin says, in search of a majority at the end, the last line, the world is before you and you need not take it the same way you found it. Mm. I don't know what that means for him Mm. or for me. I know religion can't solve that. Faith cannot solve that. Writing cannot solve that. Mm. But it does keep me living a little bit more. And whatever way he and everybody else need to find a way to stay alive Mm -hmm. and deal with the reality of this system, Mm -hmm. whatever way we need to need to do it, whether through prayer, whether through self-defense, whether it's through, you know, writing, whether it's through preaching, whatever way we need to survive and live and breathe, we need to do it. Because at the end of the day, we are living in a place that wants to suffocate us. Mm-hmm. What do I expect for my children? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if my son will be somebody, you know, who I have to mourn before his time, either through violence of a vigilante, mm. violence of the police, or violence to the streets. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I don't know if I'm going to be a recipient of violence to to the vigilantes, the violence to the police, violence to the street. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I want to teach my son and my daughter how to live mature, healthy, whole, responsible, active lives in a country, mm. knowing that they shape this country, mm. they shape the church, mm-hmm. and the future is in their eyes, in their hands, and in their hearts. Mm. That is where the future lies, whatever way you show up in the world. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. I know it's, um, when we think about our kids, you know, we have so much love for them and so much hope for them, and, and there's so much risk involved because we're bonded to them and we we want them to have good lives, mm-hmm. you know? So I know that's a tender spot. It would be for any parent who really dearly loves their kids. Um, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, this book just got started, so it's not like you you have everything all planned out, but are you continuing to write towards these things? Uh, do you have other projects in mind that you would like to tackle? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm actually working on essays right now. I got, I got, I usually every year I have like a little writing plan, a writing schedule. Yeah. Um, of, of, of things I want to talk about. But then things like this happen. Yeah. You know, with these trials and, and, and I'd be so pissed off. I got to write about it, you know, and things like that. And so writing allows me, you know, to, to kind of make sense of it. But also other people need words. And, and as writers, we work in the realm of words. And as Toni Morrison writes, there's no time for self-pity, no room for fear. This is what we do. We do language. This is how societies get set free. Civilizations heal as we do language. So whatever messy, ugly, murky, terrible language we can put together that speaks to the realness of our experience, that is the language that we need. So, you know, I wrote an essay actually... um, I wrote an essay a few days ago, actually, that was before this, you know, joint kind of popped off uh, with, with the with the verdict. I had wrote an essay entitled Their Eyes Were Watching on Trials and Tribulations mm. um, about these trials. So I'm, I'm still working on like essays and things like that. But also I got plans for more kind of book form stuff. So, yeah. You talk on 181 about nostalgia and the unjust forgetting for whites. Mm-hmm. bringing to mind what you're saying about that's another reason you you write 
is so that you don't forget, so that other people don't forget. Oh, yes, 100%. Making history, making your actual feelings out there for the record, for your own peace of mind, and that other people who lie and are unjust Mm. and wicked don't get to write the story. We don't get to act like this is okay or that this is fine. There is a problem and you get to address it and say what you're feeling and say as a prophetic witness. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can speak a little bit about 181, what we mean by nostalgia, and, and not so much as it relates to whiteness, but as your role as a writer, this is kind of a calling, and it's, it's not going to be easy because you have to take this all on yourself, right? You, had, you have to absorb the burden oh, yeah. of yeah. those feelings. and Possibly. Possibly, I mean, possibly, because we don't. Mm. No writing is ever done alone. Uh, we we always, to, to use the words of Dr. Tanika Walker Barnes, we always bring the voices of our people. Um, and so, writing is 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 a uh, uh, solitary experience, but it's not a solitary project. Sometimes writing is done, and and like I do often. I come here, I wake up in the morning, I get my coffee, I turn on my lights, I read my book for a few minutes, then I start writing. Nobody's up. It was five o'clock in the morning. Nobody's up. I can hear the voices of the ancestors. I can read. I can think. You know, it's a solitary experience, but it's not a solitary project. And so, nor, nor are we the only ones who speak to the topics that we do. And so, thank God that is the case, you know. Um, because that is, that is a terrible burden to bear, but also that is a burden as well, because oftentimes, you know, people who speak to ideas of race, religion, politics, embodiment, theology, uh, because we're not the only one, you also got to deal with the politics of whose voice is listened to. So oftentimes when we write, we can be devalued and diminished because we don't represent the voice that people want to listen to. Um, but you know, I don't I don't I don't ever want to think about like when I think about nostalgia, uh, I, I want to I don't want to give white people that definition as much as I want to talk about the ways in which like nostalgia. Yes, is a powerful tool, but like there's a difference between like nostalgia and memory, like nostalgia erases people, you know, uh, nostalgia and memory point in the same direction. You know, they always point, they always point to the juxtaposition of the future and the past as you sit in the present. So nostalgia and memory looks back at what came before. But nostalgia and memory is also an inheritance what you want to imagine for your future. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because these ideals of America, you know, that so many white people are bound to is not just about the past they want to return to about, but about the vision of the future that they want to inhabit. And so we think about Kyle Rittenhouse. He only shows up because his belief is in the, is he's as a nostalgic belief, you know, in, in, in belief of white male power. And he wants to protect it. And, and this country is gay, giving him justification to it. It is giving his belief power when it allow him to do that and get off. You know, but but memory is a different thing. You know, memory memory forces you uh, to not just you know 
you know, no, you know, memory forces you to actually think about ethics and, 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 and your and morality and, and, and history and, and being and becoming memory forces you into a moral framework, ethical framework. I, I would believe, you know, to, 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 to think about, you know, what type of future do we actually want and how does that affect other people? So for me, as I thought about my grandmother in this country, who is upward 80 uh, in the upper 80s, there is no nostalgia in some sense, but there is memory Mm -hmm. and whatever memory she hold on to. I wanted to honor that, but also my vision of the future want to be the type of future that holds her memories, but also heals them. Mm -hmm. I heard a quote. Nostalgia is looking back with the pain removed. And sometimes that pain is other people's pain, you know, and then there's no room for empathy for anybody when it's, it's a nostalgic look. Mm-hmm. There's falseness mm-hmm. because it's not, mm-hmm. it's just this kind of glossed over picture. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. looking back where we can reckon with our past and with ourselves and with mm-hmm. things that haven't gone right, it takes a lot more courage than having just nostalgia. And that's why it's important that that there isn't one voice telling us what history is, one voice, uh, the winners or or whatever of history telling us, oh, well, this is what happened in history. And you'll just have to take my word for it. Don't listen to the other people Mm -hmm. who've suffered and been in pain in the past. Mm -hmm. Those narratives are going to be very different (laughs) than the the winners of history. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm we're probably at a good time to draw to a close, but is there anything that I didn't bring up about your book that you feel like you would like to underscore or share with people who might be buying it? Yeah. I would just share with people if, if, if there are writers, you know, to, you know, I, I tried, I tried, you know, really hard to write a really good book, not just in content, but craft. Um, And I, I would tell people to pay attention to the craft. Don't just, don't just read the book, but but if you're a writer, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, pay attention to the crap. Because in some sense, what I was doing was trying to imitate others like Baldwin, Morrison, uh, Tony K. Bambara, uh, Alice Walker, K.S.A. Lehman, Jasmine Ward. You know, these these brilliant writers. I was trying to imitate what they were doing. Sarah Broom and mm-hmm. and even in revisions with Robert Jones and Deja Phil, y'all. So like trying mm-hmm. to imitate the type of writing that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and things like that. So if you're a writer and you read my book, you know, keep at it. Mm. Uh, keep, keep going, keep trying at it, keep working at it, keep, keep struggling with the, with the blank page. And remember that the blank page is not a burden, mm. nor is the blank page a dungeon, mm. uh, but it is a world to be explored. And there are so many worlds awaiting you. Awesome. That's so beautiful. Is there any part of the book that you would like to read to us as we close out? I put it, I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't say it. Yeah, yeah. No, you good. No, you good. You good. You good. You good. You. It's it's at the beginning, which which characterizes my book, mm. um, which simply says on page ten, we were never meant to survive. It is both a lyric and a lesson. The story I want to tell is this: our lives are not just resistance. Our lives are not just lessons. We're not heroes. We're not villains. We're human as beautiful as we are terrible and we are worthy of the deepest love.
Dante Stewart, I'm so thankful that you wrote this book and I'm so thankful that you shared some time with us. May you be very blessed in, with your family and, and with your career as a writer, which I'm sure is just getting off to a good start. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lisa. I am very grateful that we finally got a chance to be able to talk with one another and, and share some space together. So thank you. Mm -hmm.